Hello, my name is Caleb Kinney, and on this episode, we will be talking with Reverend John F. Kinney. Hello, Reverend. How are you doing today? I'm well, Caleb. How are you? Thank you for having me on today. I'm doing well. Thank you for asking. Thank you for joining us. So as this discussion begins, looking at the role of Bibles in the perpetuation of slavery, it can be understood that debate on whether slavery violated God's word was prevalent during the antebellum period. Excerpts from the 1838 blocks and pamphlets, an argument concerning whether slavery is sanctioned by the Bible, are important to seeing this debate spelled out through literary writing. Early in the writer's articulation, he writes that, quote, the right of property is recognized and guarded by the prohibition of, quote, thou shalt not steal, end quote. This prohibition is of universal application, meaning thou shalt not steal from anybody. And he goes on later to say, now it is no matter whether you call slaveholding stealing or not. It is at war with the doctrine of the Eighth Commandment because it destroys and enslaves the right of property, which the commandment sacredly guards. So Reverend Kenny, I want to ask you, how do the teachings of Jesus vis-a-vis love and service towards fellow individuals emphasize the aforementioned argument of the Eighth Commandment? And then, how do the, te- the teachings work to undermine the Christianity that is professed by those engaging the Bible in their pursuits to perpetuate slavery? Great question, Caleb. Um, first and foremost, when we're talking about Jesus and we're talking about Jesus's uh, demonstration or communication of love and service towards uh, fellow individuals, we have to understand that Jesus is the embodiment of the very nature of God. When we look at the Eighth Commandment, just as we look at the all 10 as a whole each commandment stems from the very first commandment that says thou shalt have no other god before me when we think about the purpose and the reason behind the 10 commandments god gave those laws to moses to share with a group of people who had never experienced freedom before they were in bondage for 400 years and the purpose of the 10 commandments was twofold First, it was designed to help them live communally in a communal setting with boundaries and benchmarks set to govern and guide their behavior communally. But more importantly, the Ten Commandments were given as a way to help people in their relationship with God. Hmm. So if God is to be primary in the lives of, quote unquote, Christians or believers, then everything from our affinity to God, our commitment to God stems from that. So by virtue of my love for God, I will not covet, I will not steal, I will not kill because God is the central thought or central being that guides my behavior. Everything I do, I'm doing it out of reflection of my relationship to God. So uh, that's probably the, the, the one thing that we need to keep in mind is that when we think about Jesus and his love and service, he's really trying to articulate that nature of God, which is trying to be expressed in those, the laws of God to the people um, as to how we should live. And the eighth commandment really comes down to my love for God, God being the center of my life will now allow me or transform me, change me, guide me into not 
wanting to steal something that really does not belong to me, as well as provide barriers for how we are to live communally. Now, the second part of your question, um, how does the teaching work to undermine the Christianity um, by those engaging in the Bible and their pursuits to perpetuate slavery? Uh, I don't really think um, uh, a lot of uh, the foundation to Christianity really has an uh, adherence to the very essence or nature of God. Um, the Bible has been used historically as a tool, as a mechanism to validate whatever I want it to mean. And quite often that's due to our uh, interpretation absent our struggle with what is God trying to articulate in God's word, through God's word, through the scriptures. Um, that, And then you see where the idea of slavery and bondage and enslavement is a sharp contradiction to what the laws and why the laws were given in the first place. They were given to people who were free from slavery, not to cause people to go back into slavery. Wow, a well-reasoned answer indeed. In a journal article about the New Testament's role in American slavery, J. Albert Harrell explores how the teachings of the New Testament were used by pro-slavery believers, primarily Paul's commentary on slavery and Paul's letter to Philemon, coined as the quote, Pauline Mandate for Federal Slave Law by Harrell. During Antebellum, this teaching garnered widespread attention among the pro-slavery community. For you, Reverend, what are some possible verses or biblical stories that were used by slave owners to help reinforce their superiority over their slaves? Well, the New Testament has a few, but I'll give you one primarily that was used quite often. And that is Colossians chapter number three, verse 22, where it says, Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything and do it, not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. So that's one example of how scripture was used to uh, reinforce slavery. Wow. It's very interesting to see a, a book with the nature as the Bible be used in order to keep people under bondage. Yes. Um, so during the historical period of slavery, we understand that abolitionist movements were essential in continuing the fight for future emancipation, namely, Isaac Nelson, who was an American abolitionist who contested the presence of slavery in American society. Furthermore, Nelson critiqued the idea of American revivalism in relation to the structure of slavery during the 1840s and 50s. In a journal from the New England Quarterly, Daniel Ritchie provides analysis on the critiques of Nelson on revivalism, namely the Ulster movement, while connecting his abolitionist sentiments. Ritchie states that, quote, Nelson was entirely unconvinced that the piety of American evangelicalism was conducive to promoting biblical morality and continues to say Nelson argued that it was hypocritical for, quote, reverend atheists, end quote, to work for the conversion of heathens when they had four million human beings on their own shores held as the, quote, chattelized victims of cruelty and lust, end quote. For you, reverend, how are the beliefs of abolition intertwined with the Christian religion in America, 
And then what does this signify about Christianity's quote, authenticity in the eyes of people who opposed slavery? Abolitionists were not in alignment or agreement with westernized Christianity, the promulgation of religion in America, because religion in America was used as a tool to promote and endorse slavery. Abolitionists believed that African black abolitionists believed that they could find themselves in the story, in the stories of the exodus, in the story of liberation, and they can find themselves um, being the persons that Jesus declared he has come to set captives free. So what this really does is it signifies um, in the eyes of the abolitionists that Christianity really um, is not an authentic religion for the masses. It's in a religion that is designed to satisfy the agenda and the purpose of a powerful majority. Right. Wow. That is very interesting. So as this time unfolded, philosophical thinkers were also pondering the presence of Christianity over African slaves, such as theological thinkers were. John Locke is a famous example of a philosopher who held deep religious ties to Protestant Christianity in America. Coupled with this is Locke's desire to have African slaves indoctrinated with Christian teachings and practices. Drawn from an analysis by Jack Tucker on Locke's Christian mission, it is posited that Locke cared for the spiritual well-being of slaves in remarks in the Fundamental Constitutions of Carolina and believed that they were deserving of the ability to choose a church and enjoy equality as a member of the congregation. For you, Reverend, what is the importance of this point against a backdrop of 17th century America in which Christianity and the Bible were components used by masters to keep enslaved persons down? And then how does this exemplify the nuances when dissecting the role of religion in relation to freedom, especially in the time period of the 17th century? That's very important because um, prior to Locke's assessment, Blacks were, slaves were only allowed to attend the churches that their masters attended. They just sit in in segregated places, were not allowed to read or learn how to read. So they were really um, forced to adhere to a practice, a, a religious style, a worship style that was not conducive to who they were as African people, African dialect. So by allowing them to choose their own churches, it allowed them to uh, congregate together and and worship their God in an environment that was most conducive to their understanding and their belief of their own journey of faith. Um, And this exemplifies, it's very important when dissecting the role of religion in relation to freedom because religion was never designed for there to be bondage. God drew enslaved people out of bondage to be free. But quite often, the history of religion has been used as a tool to promote bondage and not as something to endorse freedom. So during this period, what you see is the freedom of the gospel, the freedom of Christianity, now allowing enslaved persons to be able to worship in environments conducive for themselves. Wow, seems like such a warped understanding of what the Bible truly means. It is, it is. And on the topic of the master-slave relationship that was established in historical America, 
Matthew Warshower asserts in his journal entry a discussion on the practices of Andrew Jackson during slavery for the Tennessee Historical Quarterly that, quote, if Jackson did provide his, his slaves with such accommodations, whether solely as social control or as mild acts of humanity towards his slave, quote, family, end quote, he also engaged the more draconian measures of plantation rule. As it goes on to quote directly from Jackson in reference to a slave who was caught running away, trying to run away. The first impertinence she uses or the first disobedience of orders, she's to be publicly whipped, end quote. The overseer is to, quote, take her to the public whipping post and give her 50 lashes, end quote. And the final question for you, Reverend, how do the actions of President Jackson toward his slave establish a precedent for brutality towards African-Americans? And then how does this work to impact the master-slave hierarchy vis-a-vis -vis police brutality that has remained prevalent in the 20th and 21st century? Wow, wonderful question. Um, first and foremost, there is something called white theology, a theology that promotes or endorses or believes that whiteness is superior than any other ethnic group there is, i.e. light is good, dark is bad, how you see it in scripture. So what Jackson's, what President Jackson's actions towards slaves do is it establishes this idea that it's okay for African Americans to be brutalized and beaten because there is this superiority of whiteness that overrides all moral standards and moral beliefs that govern a society and you see this played out today with um an, an incidence of police brutality because it was in as in jackson's case whites held power so this idea of whiteness means because i have power then i can have control and authority over what i do to you and you simply have to be a good black person quote-unquote, uh, and take what I give you because at the end of the day, I am the one that's in power. That's the theology of this whiteness, which, which, which dismantles or destroys the essence of humanity being created in the image of Almighty God that you found in, in Genesis uh, narrative. Wow. What a wonderful answer to wrap this up. Pastor, we thank you for coming on with us and engaging this discussion. It was wonderful to have you and uh, hear you spew some knowledge for us and some information that we didn't have at the beginning of this podcast. So thank you again. And for all those listening, uh, thank you for tuning in.